Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Frederick Studeman, literary editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. I'm joined by John Thornhill, our innovation editor, who's written a fascinating article for FT Weekend about artificial intelligence and literature. John, artificial intelligence, which crudely put, one could say, deals with how computers can learn and operate by themselves is obviously one of the big topics of our age. It's something you've written a lot about and follow very closely. And it's something which is deemed to have the capability to comprehensively transform every aspect of human endeavour and experience, and including, as you've written in this essay, our very powers of imagination and creativity. I mean, you take us on a journey that ranges from Mary Shelley's 1816 gothic horror story Frankenstein into a future where machines may be writing about humans or even writing about themselves. I mean, how realistic is this? Or are you just having some summer fun? (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I think it has to be said that science fiction writers have been writing about these subjects for a very long time. There's a wealth of science fiction writing about all of these subjects What is interesting, I think, is he's now really gone mainstream and there have been a slew of books that have come out from authors like Jeanette Winterson and Ian McEwan, mainstream literary writers who are writing about these subjects. And I think both of them have been caught up by this debate that is going on about AI. I think a lot of that was triggered by Google DeepMind and their victory using the AlphaGo program against Lee Sidol and the Chinese Go champion. Google DeepMind is a London-based artificial intelligence company run by Demis Hassabis, and it shot to fame when it was bought by Google a few years ago and then wrote this AlphaGo program that defeated Lee Sidol, who was one of the greatest ever Go players in 2016. This is a very complicated game, isn't it, that has a history stretching back thousands of years. Indeed, it's about a two and a half thousand year old game. And it's been a big challenge for computer scientists in particular, because the number of possible moves is absolutely enormous. And so it was seen as almost the ultimate challenge for computer science. Could anyone ever create a program that would defeat the best human player at Go? which relies very much on intuition, whereas chess, when Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov in 1997, I mean, chess is clearly a very complicated game as well, but the number of moves are more limited, and it's a very rules-based game, so that it wasn't so complicated as the game of Go. But I think this defeat, certainly in China, was a massive event, and I think it has sparked the imagination of a lot of writers who are thinking about, what does this mean? I think Yuval Noah Harari, the Israeli historian, has put it rather well that We're heading into a world in which computers know us better than we know ourselves. And I think that raises all kinds of questions about identity and creativity and consciousness, the kind of things that philosophers and writers have been grappling with for centuries. Talk us just briefly through, you've referenced one or two, but just the books in particular that caught your eye. Well, the two that have come out recently are Frankenstein by Jeanette Winterson, who is clearly a wonderful writer. And I think she's really picked up on this idea of uh, Mary Shelley and the Frankenstein novel and the creation of life. And she uses that story and reinterprets it in our modern era, really to raise all kinds of fascinating questions about the nature of identity and sexuality and gender. So she uses it as a new device to explore some very old themes. Ian McEwan's book, which I love as well, called Machines Like Me, or perhaps Machines Like Me, is a very different but equally fascinating book, I think, in which the conceit is that one of the main characters buys a synthetic human, a robot, called Adam. And it's about the interplay of the main character and his girlfriend and this new robotic creation and how Adam enters into their lives and changes the dynamic of their relationship and the dynamics within the 
triangular relationship between them. But interesting, I mean, I think you and your essays judge that Jeanette Winterson is actually quite positive and excited and McEwen is more worried, concerned. I mean, why does Winterson, she sort of almost seems to embrace her. I think she said in something, this could change everything. I love this. Well, I think <laughs> the, the debate about AI, which is why it's so fascinating, is that it does go from the extreme dystopian to the extreme utopian. And I think much to the befuddlement of a lot of AI experts who are actually working in this field who see this is quite a kind of narrow technical problem that they're grappling every day with trying to write code that does things in a better way. But the debate that has been sparked off the back of it, I think, spans that extreme spectrum of views. As you say, I think Jeanette Winterson sees many positive elements of it and undoubtedly the enormous economic benefits that could derive from AI. I think she sees it as a means of stripping away some of our prejudices prejudices that we tend to think in very binary terms, in terms of identity still. You're male or female, you might be heterosexual or homosexual, you know, this doesn't matter in a world where... In a world of gender fluidity, then I think AI raises all kinds of interesting questions about that, that just the nature of human identity. I think McEwen writes a darker book and sees some of the potential downsides of AI and robotic interaction. But I think he also expresses his fascination with this new dynamic in the human relationship that you do have an external actor who is prompting us to think in different ways and to experience different emotions and really question the nature of our own identity and consciousness and what it means to be human. Can I ask you, because you follow this very closely across the piece, not just what literary folk are writing about it, but also what scientists, the tech crowd, etc. What appeals to you or what do you think is different in terms of what the novelists are bringing to the debate? What has excited you? What makes them sort of more special or distinctive contributors? Well, I think that clearly fiction writers extrapolate enormously and they let their imaginations roam freely. So I think that a lot of AI experts would read these books and scratch their heads and think, well, this is many years off, if ever, that a lot of these things are going to happen, that we are going to have robots that really are almost indistinguishable from us. But I think it's absolutely legitimate terrain for fiction. They are taking trends that are really developing quite fast in our own times and extrapolating. What if we really did have a robot that was almost indistinguishable from us? I think it does change the nature of relationships between humans and with outside beings. So I think um, it raises all kinds of really fascinating questions, which is, after all, the function of literature. We've been talking quite a bit about writers engaging with the topic. What about when the machines do the writing? As you say, you know, it's been there in sci-fi, but actually it's already with us. In certain fields, machines are writing, are creating texts. You do have machine reading programs that are indeed writing text at the moment. And I mean, one of our correspondents at the FT, Sarah O'Connor, pitted herself against one of these machine writing programs to write a basic economic news story a couple of years ago. And Emma, I think if that was the name of the uh, robot reporter, did a perfectly good job of turning a standard economics uh, statistics story into a passable news story. I have to say that Sarah's story was considerably better. But a number of big news agencies in America, AP, Bloomberg and so on, are using machine writing programs to produce an increasing number of their reports, or at least to inform a lot of their reports. So for bog standard news stories, particularly on financial results, machines, computers can write these really quite quickly. And in America, on the West Coast, when there is seismic activity, there are writing programs that write up 
when an earthquake happens, they can do this far quicker than anyone else that there was a small quake located here, this scale of earthquake and so on. People are experimenting more and more with how far you can take this. There are people who are now writing poetry, some very good poetry, I think, that is machine-written. And people have begun to experiment with longer literary forms as well. I mean, you mentioned one where someone seriously done an experiment to follow Jack Kerouac's On the Road, but having it all done by a machine, is that yes, right? Uh, or am I... There was a writer and data scientist called Ross Goodwin who went on a road trip from New York to New Orleans and he hooked up various sensors in his car. There was a GPS monitor, a microphone, a camera and a clock. And then he drove and the computer program had machine read a lot of literature so it recognized the patterns in books and he therefore trained the program in order to write a novel as he was going along on this road trip the sections of it that i've read are incredibly erratic a lot of it is nonsensical it's quite a bit of writing written by humans that sometimes are like that (laughs) and maybe that's what you edit fred But these amazing juxtapositions of images and ideas and thoughts. So, I mean, a very, very long way from writing a passable novel. But you can see the direction of travel. And I think some of these experiments are absolutely fascinating. And I mean, one book I think that you really enjoyed was James Lovelock's Novocene. Am I right in thinking he says, okay, maybe they're not there yet, but they're going to get there? Is that correct? Well, James Lovelock, a great science writer who has just celebrated his 100th birthday, so he has a rather long perspective on these things. It's a wonderful book called Novocene, The Coming Age of Hyperintelligence. And I mean, it's an incredibly speculative essay, but What he's arguing is that our planet has existed for about 4.5 billion years. It's likely to last about the same again. And at some point in this arc of evolution, human intelligence will be superseded by electronic intelligence. And he speculates that this will take incredibly different forms. We flatter ourselves that all intelligence has to be somehow like us. But there's no reason why that should be true at all. And one of the fascinating things that he writes about is in this post-human future in the world of electronic intelligence, we will be post-language. That language, as he sees it, is a very constricting force. It forces our thinking in very defined ways. We categorize, we have to classify everything. If we can't express it in language, then it's not deemed legitimate thought. But he's always been a great believer in intuition um, of the subconscious mind, of things that we cannot properly articulate. So his speculation is that the next wave of intelligence will play and use that a lot more and therefore by definition will be expressing ideas telepathically in ways that we couldn't even begin to understand. So we'll be completely written out of the script by this point. Well, yes, uh, I think that's largely where that is ending up. And I mean, I think one of the fascinating things as well is that Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, who wrote a wonderful book last year called On the Future, also argues that if we ever encounter extraterrestrial intelligence, it almost certainly will be some form of electronic intelligence because we carbon-based life forms are not suitable for traveling vast distances across the galaxies in order to meet anyone else in our universe. And so the only life forms that could possibly do that are going to be electronic intelligence. So either we send out electronic intelligence from planet Earth at some point in the future or we get inbound electronic intelligence. But it's very hard to imagine that the likes of you and me will ever go off into the outer distances of space and meet any aliens. Well, on that sobering note, John, thank you very much. And thanks to everyone for listening. But John, before you go, 
Maybe you'd like to tell us a bit about the next episode of Tectonic. That's the podcast you present on the future of technology. Go on, Trump, what you've been talking about. This is very relevant to what we've been talking about. My next guest was Ben Goetzel, who's a fascinating computer scientist who very much believes in a lot of the issues that we've been talking about. He does believe that artificial general intelligence, which is defined as when artificial intelligence surpasses or equals human intelligence, is not going to be that far distant, uh, 2029, maybe in the 2030s, which is a big deal. And that he is also a great transhumanist. He believes that people should live forever and that it's not inconceivable that at some point in the future we may all be able to upload our brains to computers and, in a way, turn ourselves into an electronic form of intelligence. Wow. Okay. Thank you, John. And for those listening, don't forget that if you've missed out on our recent news and focus episodes on the decline of the renminbi or India's crackdown in Kashmir or Russia's futurist tax system, you can find them all on the usual podcast platforms. Hi, this is Lila Raptopoulos. I'm the co-host of a new podcast from the Financial Times called Culture Call. From the 13th of August, we're going to be dropping into your podcast feeds every other Tuesday, bringing you encounters with those who are shifting culture around the world. We'll have lively discussions on how the social changes we're seeing are depicted in books, art, music, on screen and online. And we'll give you a glimpse behind the scenes of the best of the FT's life and arts journalism. You can find the podcast in all the usual places, like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Acast, when Culture Call drops on Tuesday, August 13th. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.